ever leave here. Already your graves are dug. By nightfall, Ma Kali will be smiling. Kali. Kali! 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 Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Wookiee Genome Project, the podcast about everything Star Wars that isn't Star Wars, but also with some Star Wars. I'm Diamond Rob Russo, alderman at large for Twitsburg, PA, and with me today is Emily Lind. Welcome back, Emily. Yay. Oh, thanks for having me on again. <laughs> thanks for thanks for uh, 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 joining me. Um, I was so lonely last time, and, and that's nobody's fault but mine, but... I, I feel bad like asking people to watch stuff they don't want to watch. So I'm glad that you wanted to watch Gunga Dean. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if I would say I wanted to watch it. Oh, it no. Was oh, no. <laughs> I, was, I, I was willing to watch it. Okay. I, if, if nothing else, I can say I feel bad about making people watch things they're not willing to watch. <laughs> no, it's one of those. I, I feel like it, it's a good movie to have watched. Yeah. In terms of like classic film knowledge, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get into this because I I think we both have a lot to say about this. <laughs> As people who watch a lot of things that are maybe like good to have watched, because you've you've watched them and <laughs> hey, that's history. Um, on this show, we explore the pop culture DNA of the Star Wars films, which is to say, the old adventure serials, cowboy films, comic books, uh, pulp fiction, etc., etc. That uh, uh, shaped the saga we know and love today. This episode continues a special series where we've been covering seven films that Ryan Johnson himself screened for the cast of The Last Jedi, and we'll be pairing each of these up with a chaser of classic Star Wars uh, mythology, lore, whatever. Basically, stuff that isn't canon anymore, but is still interesting. This will take us right up to the release of The Last Jedi, so stick with us and be prepared. This week, we're watching Gunga Dean, a 1939 adventure movie directed by George Stevens and starring Cary Grant again. He's back. And Douglas Fairbanks Jr. And we're chasing that with a 1994 story, The Freedom Nod Uprising, from the Dark Horse's uh, fabled Tales of the Jedi comic series. Before we get started on Gunga Dean, is there anything interesting happening in the world of Star Wars and nerdery um, that have you, did you have a chance to check out the, uh, the Rolling Stone story that just came out? No, I'm sort of at the point where I'm 
not reading anything at all until after mm. I see the last. Yeah, I, I've I've uh, put myself on spoiler lockdown, but this one I was assured by somebody didn't have any spoilers in it, and I think that's true. It's not not at least if there is anything, it's not the kind of thing I'm going to remember when I'm watching the movie. I don't know about you, but while I'm watching a new Star Wars movie, like I kind of like even if I know some stuff is going to happen, it's sort of if the movie's good, I'll kind of not be thinking about that. And like, for example, I knew for a fact that like Poe Dameron survived, but I kind of wasn't thinking about that when I was watching the movie. So that was a good sign. That means it's working. Movie magic. It's an interesting one. It's, I mean, it's the one where famously, I think the big news, the the two big news things out of it are news things. That's a, I could do better news things. The two big news News things. things. It's a technical term. Here's a hot news news thing for you. Uh, is uh, Daisy Ridley said that she's not going to, you know, she, she sees episode nine as, as being her uh, retirement from the character of Ray. Um, and this, I'm not so, although I am sad to think about the character being, you know, continuing on without her. I feel like they would be smart not to do that. But on the other hand, I don't know. Do you think this is just like bargaining stuff? I mean, maybe, or, you know, it's just sort of the the things that you say when you have a contract to do a set number of movies and then that contract is over. Yeah, I mean... I mean, technically, as of right now, she's is going to be done playing Ray. Yeah. So... I mean, she did say very much that she felt like it was going to be her... You know, she's, she's trying to make it sound final. Uh, like, this is like my final statement on the character or something like that. She wasn't bad-mouthing Star Wars at all, but I think it's important to remember that uh, a lot of these actors who get signed, like these relative unknowns that get signed to these huge movies and they sign like multi-picture deals, they don't really get paid that much. Um, I don't know how much Ray, or, <laughs> Ray Daisy Ridley uh, is making from these movies, but I don't think it's all that much, not compared to what she is now officially earning these movies, you know? Like yeah. if, if they said, oh, episode nine's coming out and Daisy Ridley is not in it, I, I think that it would lose money. So I can understand her like wanting to like, no, if you got, if you want me back, like you better really, you know, whenever it is like you, you, you she's laying the groundwork for like, if you, if you want me back later, like you better really pony up and they're going to have to, cause now she's, she's going to be by the end of this, she's going to be as big as Mark Hamill or probably anybody but Harrison Ford really. Yeah, I'd say so. And I think the same, I, I wouldn't be surprised to hear the same thing from John Boyega. Um, cause I'm pretty sure that he, uh, he, I'm not sure. Cause he had a little bit more of a film presence. So he might've made a little bit more money off of his contract, but I don't think it's that much. And you know, like people like Chris Hemsworth and stuff and like the Marvel movies, like are kind of vocal about how they signed contracts for indefinite movies. And, uh, it didn't make that much money off of it. I don't know how I feel about that. Cause like on one hand it's like, yeah, but you jump started your career. Like you can do whatever you want now. But on the other hand, it's kind of like, yeah, but it's a lot of pressure on you. Cause if you fail at a star Wars movie, like not only is your career in trouble, but like people will blame you <laughs> for that stuff. And it's not, yeah, not always fair the way that works. Like I feel like, I mean, the, 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 I mean, we all know that the example here, right. Is, is Hayden Christensen. And it's like, it's really hard to know for sure how much of that. I mean, we all know what his performance was like, but it's how, how can you, I always feel bad about like saying, Oh, he's bad. Cause I don't know that that you can tell, like he's a young actor and I feel. Yeah. yeah. And also there are, there are actors who can 
rise above bad material. And there's actors who are perfectly good when they have good material who don't have the presence or, or the experience to lift up something that's not already good. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, I don't know anything about acting, but I do know that like if I were an actor and I were relatively new to the the thing and I was not given very much direction or, or given direction that was, that basically amounted to do this as lifelessly as possible. Um, then I would probably feel like I had to do that. Whereas if I were someone like Ewan McGregor or Ian McDermott, I would be like, no, I'm just going to do a good job. Like, you know, like in, or, you know, Christopher Lee is just kind of takes like doing bad dialogue to like a, a, as an art form. He, he almost sounds better when he's the worse his lines are, but, um, yeah, I, I, I am definitely not, uh, I don't like to gang up on, um, any of the actors in a star Wars movie for their lines because, it's it's hard stuff to read and i don't i would like hayden christensen to like have a career and like return to acting someday and i know he does little things here and there but yeah and he he has he has given decent performances so i do think he definitely has talent um i mean this is i mean old by now but i think he is really good in shattered glass mm-hmm. like it's just a a really solid performance pretty much like all the way through like that's a good movie and he's he's one of the reasons it's good yeah and the other thing that was in that rolling stone interview uh which is what we're supposed to be talking about is oh yeah is uh jj abrams they like got like one quote from him i think where he said he thinks of episode nine he's thinking of episode nine as the end of the skywalker saga which he acknowledges may not end up being the case but that's how he's approaching it and that tells you I guess that whether or not it is the end, that's what you're going to see is some kind of finality, which I can't imagine what that is. Um, I mean, I always assumed it was going to be like Luke's last movie. So like how, how is Luke's story over? When, when does it, when do you know it's over? I, I wonder what he considers to be like the Skywalker story though. Here's the thing. A lot of people, talk about the Skywalker saga, you know, in quotes, right? It's very hard to describe what that is because it kind of changes with every single movie. (laughs) It's never the same. Um, I don't think, I think he was a character that was designed not to have a story beyond the story of learning to be a Jedi. And I don't think that, now that doesn't mean that you that there aren't other stories to tell with them, but like I don't th- I think that was it because originally it was just supposed to go on forever, like which is what it's going to end up doing. But there wasn't going to be any like finality to Episode Six, for example. Like that was just going to be the end of part of the story, and then he was going to go on. So I don't think that he has a clear story. Like they made it in Return of the Jedi and said, "Oh, your story's over once you confront your father and destroy the Emperor." Right. But that isn't clear in the first two movies at all. Yeah. So that is clearly a, that's a tacked on story. Like in, 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 in empire strikes back, like the story is like, is he, is he, or is he not going to become a Jedi? And for whatever reason, return the Jedi starts out by showing, but basically announcing that, yes, he is a Jedi Knight now, even though you don't really know what that is yet. That's what he is. And it already happened. And it's kind of like, Oh, okay. And now his story ends when X happens. And then in the prequels, you get this like prophecy thing, which 
is very like there's there's an uh, article in the Hollywood Reporter today that was somebody was talking about what JJ said, and they're basically like, how how will we you know the what they're, they're trying to make sense of how the the Skywalker story fit into the prophecy and basically cemented the fact that nobody really understands it unless you're a super mega fan and you might still not understand it. But, but I would say I, I like the idea of approaching it. Like it's the end. Why is that? Well, because I want it to have, I want Luke to have an ending in this movie. I mean, there's a couple things. One, I sort of feel like have, I don't know what you would do with Luke and a trilogy after this. And also, and this is a shitty thing to say, but I mean, it's something I've been thinking about with, with Carrie's passing is like, I mean, give him an ending. Yeah. Just in now. case, right? Yeah. yeah I, I, it's, I don't think you're being morbid. I think you're just being realistic. It's like, you don't, not that he's so old that he's, he's not that old, but you never know. Like, I mean, you know, we've all had, I'm sure everybody listening to this show right now knows a relative uh, of theirs that, that died unexpectedly at, at, you know, in their sixties and it happens. It's like, well, yeah. And also I just, I don't know if I want to see a movie with like, you know, 80 year old Luke. I call me weird, but I definitely want to see a movie with 80 year old Luke, but I don't know why. Like, <laughs> I just want to see him like, as like this, crusty old relic that i mean i guess you can't really do that again because that's already been done where he's like revealed at the end of the movie is like oh that's what he is that's where he was oh there he is he's he's old he's got a beard like you see him again like they can't do that trick again i guess well yeah that's that's sort of what i mean like i feel like these movies have already set up i mean and obviously we we haven't seen the last Jedi yet but i feel like it's already setting up to be an endpoint for luke Or, or at least in terms of at least in terms of him being a a character with a with a a like plot driving force behind him. Last question about this: What do you, what what kind of thing? Not necessarily a specific thing, but what kind of thing or an example of the kind of thing would need to happen for you to feel like he has has completed his second journey? Well, there has to be. I mean, there's got to be something with with Kylo and some sort of confrontation i suppose him like maybe deciding he doesn't need to be a miserable old hermit anymore but like for some movie worthy reason i'm assuming like not like he's like goes to therapy for a couple weeks and he's like you know what i'm good enough as i am like i (laughs) i'm asking too much of myself no i think they'll i think we'll see you know like maybe they'll be him like realizing he needs to go like help out ray I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to say because I sort of I have an idea that it's going to be a fairly like standard plot in terms of the reluctant teacher. Yeah, I mean that's this is what I've. This is the kind like I I I don't know whether anybody remembers it, but this I I kind of called this. Uh, before like the first trailer dropped where it's time with the Jedi to end. And the only reason why I could guess that was because it's like the plot of every single like Kung Fu movie ever made, right? Where you like go find the old teacher and he's like, no, I'm not training any more students. Go away. You know, it's like, it's the, it's the, 
which is exactly what Star Wars should be doing, by the way. I mean, I don't think that's a, a dis, you know, you're not disrespecting the series or anything like that, but. No, and when I say that, I'm not I'm not saying it with any sort of uh, dismissive or or disappointment. Like I just sort of that's the story I'm expecting to yeah, see, and I think you, they can do it well. I don't want to see too many like tricks. I guess that's a better word for that. I'm sure, but like I don't want to see like nar- like narrative tropes or something get subverted. I don't want to see that like in Star Wars. Like I just want things to be like no, you just pick like a classic kind of story and you do. You know, you, 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 you film the hell out of it. You know, you just do it as best as you possibly can. And you also make it crazy sci-fi weirdo space magic stuff. And it's like, that is about all I can ask. I can't imagine though, like what he could do or what could happen to him other than like the, the standard, like heroic sacrifice that would be appropriate. But yeah, I mean, I'm not going to be shocked if he dies, but I could also see them, you know, doing some sort of like, well, now they're going to go start up an academy again. And it might not be the Jedi, but it'll be some sort of force sensitive power training school. Yeah. It's that'll be what it's called. They've got a problem with this. If they really, if they really do end the Jedi, which I think they kind of have to, like you notice that the lightsaber to non lightsaber quotient is pretty lopsided in these movies. I think that's deliberate because I think, I think we kind of blew our proverbial wad, so to speak with the prequel trilogy. There's like so much lightsaber stuff. It's like, it just isn't special anymore. It's done. And the Jedi thing I think is about the same, but what else are they going to do? I don't know. I'm because the, the stuff that I'm really interested in is not stuff that makes for a, film trilogy i guess i mean there's a big like i i agree like i kind of just like the characters and i'm i just wanted to see stories with them but i i will say like as as much as i rag on um return of the jedi like i i do like like the kind of it is kind of nice to see the final confrontation there even if it does feel a bit rushed it's like oh that's something that you know that feels like a story right there that feels like something's happening and something ended and, and like, he's going to go off on a journey. And I did kind of like the, the idea of Luke just being like a wandering Jedi guru of some sort who like finds followers and has adventures that aren't necessarily like the fate of the galaxy hanging in the balance. Not really sure where I'm going here. I guess like if Ryan, if what Ryan Johnson's quote unquote, the Ryan Johnson trilogy, even though he's only, they've only said that he's going to write and direct the first one, which means that he's starting it, but, if if what it turns out is that like there's a first family of the force or of the Jedi and what Luke learns is that there's like a, a lineage of something that everybody is related to or in some way, in some weird way that, and that that's what Ryan Johnson's going to go back and tell the story of like, not raise like family, but raise ancient ancestors. And that she's like the re her reappearance into the galaxy is like the, the force writing a long, cosmic wrong of some kind and that she's the one who can restart and she she alone can choose to restart the jedi because that's what her destiny is because of who she is um first of all that would be very much in keeping with like the original drafts of star wars which is the story about the jedi that the proto luke tells to his like siblings about where the jedi came from it was like a family and they passed it down among the family and stuff like that but if that's what happens then i think like what if Luke dies at the beginning of episode nine, almost Obi-Wan style, right? Would that be lame 
I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> if he's going to tell Ray, like, it's your choice, like, because of who you are, like, you've proven yourself, like, it's your choice what happens next. My 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 point was to keep the fire burning until you got here, and the fanboys will absolutely like die, just self emoliate. Oh God, it'd be so. I would. I would be so happy. If the Skywalker just for that line rage. was demoted to a like a placeholder hero of some kind. Uh, that would absolutely people would flip out. Oh, that would be so much fun. Frankly, I'm not, I'm not, I'm surprised that people aren't as upset as they are about the whole Jedi ending thing. Um, I, I stand by my prediction that the last Jedi is going to kind of like, I think there's going to be a not majority of fans, but a, a sizable minority of fans who are really upset by what it does. And I, I cannot wait. Anyway, we got to talk about Gunga Dean. So, <laughs> so speaking of characters who have uh, uh, moral and emotional journeys, um, here this movie is about three characters who do exactly the opposite. Um, Man, they're a bunch of assholes. They really are. Uh, let's just to introduce this one. I mean, to uh, like to summarize, it's basically a story about three drunk army guys in India who try to plunder a golden temple and get more than they bargained for or something like that. Even though that's not literally what happens, I guess, but it's, it, it, it does. It's, it stars, uh, as we said, Cary Grant back again, Cary Grant's in two of these movies and, uh, it's got Douglas Fairbanks jr. Um, he plays a guy named Ballantyne. He's the guy who's going to get married to, uh, what's her name? Joan Fontaine, Joan Fontaine, which I don't understand why, and Cary Grant's a handsome man, but unless that's your thing, like Joan Fontaine seems like a good option. It's like, go oh, get a nice business career, but we'll get to that. And then there's also Victor McLaughlin, uh, McLaughlin, McLaughlin. It's not McLaughlin. He plays McChesney. And they're all kind of like, I think they're sergeants in what amounts to like the, like the Royal British Army Engineering Corps of some sort. And they're in India and it's like the time is around like 1880 or so. And the movie's based on a uh, Rudyard Kipling poem of the same name, Gunga Dean, which have you actually read that? Did you read that in like high school or something? Um, I've, I've read it before just cause I've, I, I mean, I sort of grew up not with, I mean, not with that, but with a lot of other Kipling stuff. So it's one that I just sort of always known. Yeah. It's an interesting one. I mean, it's, I guess we can talk about how the film relates to the poem at the end, because that's what the film literally does. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. And to be clear, like, I think we're going to, there's a lot of problems with this movie. Some of them are, there's a few plot problems, I think, but mostly it's like just watching it from a modern standpoint. Like I'm not interested in judging it necessarily, but there are issues that are raised that would not be appropriate in films today at all. And, uh, and there's other stuff that probably would be appropriate in films today, but shouldn't be. And, um, but yeah, so like the movie begins at this great opening sequence, uh, what did you think of this? Like how, like it's like the, the kind of outpost town and uh, like unseen figures are like cutting the telegraph lines and they start like a panic and kill people. I really liked the beginning and I thought, Oh, this is going to be a really interesting, awesome movie. And then that sort of isn't what the movie's about. (laughs) And I was very disappointed. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, the movie is very, in some ways it feels like 
the way it's paced feels pretty modern except for like the ballroom dancing scene in the middle which yeah. is interminable um but it's it's uh i mean it is like it does feel like a pretty other other than that it feels like a pretty modern paced adventure movie in a lot of ways like it has like a cold open like a james bond type open almost right where there's like something bad happens and then you don't find out how it relates to the heroes you aren't even introduced to the heroes until after it shows it and it's got that great stuff and it introduces the bad guys who are the um uh thuggy uh kind of crime cult of some sort who are actually historically real and that is where we get the word thug from i'll just get that out of the way that's really where it comes from and I'll talk more about the thuggy later. I, I did look this up. Originally, I was going to have Johnny Grasso on the show, and he would have told us all about this stuff. Um, but <laughs> I just decided – I just felt bad. Like, I'm just bothering him. Like, he doesn't he doesn't want to watch an old movie and do this. Like, it's just not his thing, and it, and it shouldn't have to be. But I, uh, I do uh, think he would – he's going to find all kinds of problems with my summarization of history here. But, hey, look, you had your chance, man. Um, <laughs> now I'm going to go about leading my audience astray. Uh, so yeah, I mean, so then it introduces us to the the heroes, and it kind of introduces us like to them in like mid fist fight, right? They're like punching dudes out of windows. Yeah, yeah. because yeah, because it turns out uh, Cary Grant's character has, I, I guess, tried to buy a map to some hidden treasure. And it turns out that they was, you know, a scam. He's kind of like a really crappy Indiana Jones. He's like, if Indiana Jones sucked at his job, he'd be this guy. It's like. Yeah. And if Indiana Jones just wanted to, to, like, steal Yeah, that's true. Like, he also, (laughs) there's no, like, it belongs in a museum with this guy. It's like, no. And he's got this, like. I mean, I guess, okay. I guess Indiana Jones is stealing shit from, you know, like, the native temples and stuff but at least he's putting it in a museum it's still there if they ask for it back yeah, yeah. that is a well yeah indiana jones has some problems too well, well okay so let's quickly go over the stuff that so i think it's only the the fertility goddess idol in the beginning of raiders that would actually qualify right because that one is clearly was put there by people who want it to stay there who I think are implied to still be alive, right? They're the people who, who come with, uh, what's his name? The, the French guy. Yeah. Or maybe not. No, that might be true. But if it's, an, if they're like, if it's like the Mayans or something, then who really can lay a claim to it other than the country where it's found? But. Well, yeah, but that's a pretty big other than. <laughs> that's true. Okay. So what else does he do? So the, the Shankara, the, the, okay. The Ark of the Covenant, right? That's not just a relic. It's a weapon. So that should be taken away. <laughs> so that's different. I mean, I guess generally if it's a choice between Indiana Jones getting it and the Nazis getting it, I, I want Indy to have it. Well, yeah. Even if it's just like a pretty painting, you kind of, you, you're pro Indy anti-Nazi. I, I can understand that. Yeah. But if, if the choice has to be between the two, but it is like a super weapon. It's like an ancient super weapon that unleashes like the power of Jehovah on, on anybody who, who dares look at it. Um, so that probably should be locked up. Uh, and the Shankara stones, he gives back to the village in temple of doom. So, which by the way is like, of course, obviously based on a lot of this movie, um, down to, in- and including the cult at issue. Um, it could almost be seen as a sequel to this movie. How about that? Hmm. Interesting. 
you're not interested, but I tried. <laughs> okay, back to this. I feel like we should talk about I don't this. Want to. No, I do. I, I actually did kind of enjoy it, but I didn't enjoy it as much as I've enjoyed the other stuff I've watched for this series. So yeah, like he's kind of Cutter, who I'm just going to call Cary Grant from now on because I, I can't, I'm not going to keep that. He's so that, yeah, they're in a fist fight because someone sold him a bad map, I think. Yeah. And he's just perpetually on the make. He always wants to find like some treasure. That's why he's in India is to get drunk and find treasure. And he's only, he's only done the first so far. He's really good at that. He's bad at, bad at finding treasure. And, uh, so they get called up by a Colonel of some sort and they're sent with a, a unit of, of some kind of the British Indian army troops. So they're Indian soldiers, but they're, they're working for the British and, um, to kind of go back to this town. I can't remember what it's called. Tantapur. Tantrapur. Tantrapur. Oh, good. Okay. You, that sounds right. Um, so they got to put up the telegraph lines and kind of figure out what happened. So they go, they put up the telegraph lines, they're bored for a little while. And then the, the, the thuggy attack again, and they get fought off and some of them are captured and they find this weird, like hook, like weapon that they use. Right. Yeah. It was sort of like a hooky pickaxe thing looks like whenever you see like ice men in the old movies, like in, in like, you know, the people who delivered ice, like in giant blocks, it looks like half of one of those things. Kind of, it's like a yeah. cross between that and an anchor in a weird way. It doesn't really matter. Anyway, I don't think that was something that historical thuggy actually used, but uh, we'll, we'll get to that. It's, it's cool. It looking. is cool looking. And it's cool. They got like a signature weapon and the Colonel's like, Oh, the thuggy have returned. Like we thought we, we stamped them out a hundred years ago, but they're back. And uh, that is, I think, also true to life. It's kind of like a. Do we want to talk? Do you want to talk about him now, or should we wait until after we get to like the big, like, like speechifying scene with the guru guy? And um, it's up to you. You're the one who knows about them. I don't know much, and what I know may be wrong. I'm not really sure whether that <laughs> should dictate when it goes. So anyway, so they find out where they are, and at the same time, uh, so they're they're stationed there, and then. Um, uh, this is where Gunga Dean kind of finally comes into play. So he's a Bisti, which is which is a water carrier. And he's played by a guy named Sam Jaffe. I think this is, if not his first film, it's one of his first. And he may have been a stage actor before this, but he this is his first major role. And he is in Brownface. Let's uh, get that clear. Um, however, he was a, I, my understanding is he was a last minute hire because who they wanted to get was a guy named Sabu. Um, Sabu, uh, what's his last name? Dottagir, I think. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. He is an actual Indian actor. And he was in uh, the 1940 Thief of Baghdad, if you've seen that. Uh, a lot of people haven't, I guess. It's not really. It's I okay. Not. <laughs> um, I saw it at Film Forum uh, several years ago. They had a swashbuckler week. It was pretty good. Oh, cool. um, but that's... Uh, he he uh, sabu's amazing because he was kind of like this i think his first film was like a british film but he's he's an indian actor and he he was born in india and uh he was a pretty young guy when he got started and he was uh, uh, oddly enough like in the in the early 1940s was like a sex symbol of of a kind um in a way because it was a it was appropriate for him to be seen shirtless i think more than than say like clark gable or somebody um because oh well he's an indian so that's okay right and he's like yeah. this live, just like, just, 
I don't know if you can find a picture of him. I'm, I'm curious about what your take is. Cause he strikes me as a very handsome young man. Um, some of the pictures of him will be kind of young looking, but like from about 1940 on, he was um, pretty attractive and he, he had an amazing career. Uh, and I think shortly after doing thief of Baghdad, he joined the army air force and was like a ball turret gunner, which is like probably the most dangerous uh position to have on a, on a bomber plane during world war two and got medals for bravery and stuff. He was just like an, like amazingly, like he's like, he's like an Errol Flynn type character, but less icky. Um, so they really wanted Sabu, but they didn't get him. Uh, I can't remember why. So they ended up with Sam Jaffe and, and Jaffe is much older than Sabu. And he, he has been interviewed on this. And I think he said that he tried as much as he could to play the character as, as he thought Sabu would have. Um, which is weird in a way because it makes him very childlike for how old he is, which has other unpleasant connotations. Yeah. What, what do you think about that? Like, I was, I was sort of wondering about that through throughout this movie, like what we're supposed to think about that character. Yeah, the first time you see him, he's like he he's shown as kind of like a Royal Army fanboy, where he's been watching the soldiers drill, and he and uh, Cary Grant like goes through the steps with them just to see how much he knows. And he's really good. He can do like the turn and the about face and, and all that stuff. And of course he's super duper loyal. I don't know. We'll, we'll get to, I mean, I guess we got to we'll, we'll, once we talk about his, and yeah. I mean, yeah. There's some yay colonial. There's a lot of yay colonialism. Is in this. There? I mean, there's a the thing about Kipling's work where nobody can, even to this day can really agree on how, pro-colonial he was because he's the kind of guy who grew up in colonial like in, in i think india um under you know british occupation british rule and he tried to make a go of it moving to england and he hated it and he spent the rest of it, he moved back and he spent the rest of his life in english territories uh, he never wanted to go back to england um and he uh and and the poem gunga Deen is of course like about like how the soldier is a, a piece of garbage and realizes at the last moment, you know, that his, uh, water bearer is actually like a, 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 uh, a great man who, who is brave and all the things he's not. And, um, I mean, there's, it's not like it's, it's totally laudable, but you're never quite sure where Kipling stands on a lot of these things. I'm always curious, but it's kind of like, um, uh, like Mark Twain criticized him for this, uh, I think as well at the time. So it's, it's, and I, I can't remember. I'm, I used to know this stuff, but it's, it's now, all gone. Now this now. is one thing I did. I did want to bring up in, in the poem. Yeah. It is very clear that, you know, this soldier is a piece of shit and watching the movie. Now I go, man, Cary Grant is a huge, huge jackass. Yes. But it's also Cary Grant. And it's Cary Grant. When was this movie shot? Nineteen. I think it was shot in 1939. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's it's like 1939 Cary Grant. So in terms of how audiences back then would have would have viewed this character, I, I do you think they thought, wow, he's a terrible person? Or is it, wow, look at Cary Grant being, you know... I don't uh, I, I, a rascal. I think they took that element of the poem out of the story because in the poem, he talks about how he kicked Gunga Dean and he, and he, and he, he whipped Gunga Dean and was like 
abusive in every possible way. And Gunga Dean still carries his water to him with his dying breath at the very end of it. And he's like, you're a better man than I am, Gunga Dean. And they, well, yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't show Cary Grant. Whipping no, somebody. that would be, I mean, I don't, even if, even for fidelity to the poem and to the message, I think that would be really un, unsavory. He's just kind of, he doesn't, he's, you know, he's patronizing to, to Gunga Dean, but he's not, and he, he bosses him around, but he's, his bigger problems are the way he treats his buddy, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., which we'll have to get to really soon. All right. So looking at my notes. All right. So the, the subplot of this movie is that Douglas Fairbanks Jr. is actually about to leave the army and he's going to marry uh, a woman named Emmy, who's played by Joan Fontaine. And I think he's going into her father's tea business, which is like one of the things that they did. In yeah. The and this is apparently the worst possible fate that anyone could face. Cary Grant and Victor McLaughlin. I think I'll just call him McChesney because they say his name a lot more than the other characters. So I remember that one. Um, but they cannot abide by this, that they're breaking up the old gang. You know, it's like that. Uh, there's this old like 20s song for some reason. I've never forgotten after hearing it on like WFMU or something like that. It's, Wedding bells are breaking up that old gang of mine. You know, like you can imagine how that sounds, right? Like that's exactly the sentiment in this thing. And it's like the boys club is it's a, it's a literally a no girls allowed type mentality with them. Which they take later to extreme measures. I cannot believe what Douglas Fairbanks Jr.'s character does at the end of this. <laughs> it's, I, so, it's so fucked up. It is awful. I mean, I'm not just saying that, like, I don't think it any, I, I can't imagine even in the 40s or the 30s, this would have been like, people would have been like, oh yeah, that's what you, that's how you treat your fiance. Like, no, <laughs> but yeah, so they can't stand and they do these, all these tricks on like to try and like trick him into sticking around. And it's like, what they're going to lose like a drinking buddy. And they're upset because he's going to be his, his position is going to be replaced by this loser that they hate. And, uh, there's a, literally there's a, a literal spiking the punch bowl scene in this movie. That goes on and on and on and on. <laughs> it just keeps going. I mean, it's kind of funny when, uh, when uh, McChesney after they spike it with, they spike it with like an elephant sedative, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, because there's this elephant, Annie. That's the only character I can remember is the elephant. She's the only woman who's treated with any kind of respect in the movie. <laughs> McChesney loves Annie. He, 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 he treats her very nicely. <laughs> but the way they treat Joan Fontaine is not cool. Um, but yeah, like... Yeah, but there's this very like slapsticky sequence at this uh, ball, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You just kind of got to watch it, and then you really kind of don't have to watch it, actually. Uh, but it's not – anyway, the point is is they don't want their buddy to go off and get married and leave them, and they quickly turn what happens next into an excuse of getting him to stay. So they go uh, – the next thing that happens is that Gunga Dean tells Cary Grant of a golden temple. He found a golden temple off in the jungle not too far from them, and uh, Cary Grant – character is of course as we said like a poor man's indiana jones and he really wants to go loot this temple that's that's he's like this is it i'm gonna do it and he like he gets good and drunk which is what you do to get prepared for these sort of lootings and uh, mcchesney who i don't think is i i guess he's kind of his superior officer but they're all sergeants not really sure how this works and mcchesney says no you're not going and he goes so far as to lock him up in like the brig um, is it called the brig if it's not on a ship i don't think so but i also have no actual knowledge the, the stockade how about that okay there we go 
locks him up in the stockade. And so Cary Grant then gets Gunga Dean's attention and tells him to uh, get the elephant to pull the bars off the window so he can escape. And the elephant ends up knocking down the entire jail, which is actually pretty funny. <laughs> it's how that works out. Um, and then they go off to the temple and they find out, oh, it's not empty. Like it's full of the thuggy and they like sneak in and they hear this awesome speech by the guru, the leader of the thuggy who is played by Eduardo Cianelli. So um, he must be an uh, Italian American actor. I think this guy does great. Yeah. He's also in brown face. Yeah. But- basically there are like the background characters can actually be Indian, but if you have a speaking role, no, <laughs> I, I'm not hundred percent about this and I haven't been able to find an answer either way. Cause I was curious about this too. And I think that the background actors are probably not Indian either because my understanding of the way the immigration law worked at this time was that it would be very, you couldn't just like get like, first of all, Indian, Amer- Indian people couldn't just like immigrate freely to the United States. Um, it was not that easy. And on top of that, and for that reason, you, you couldn't just like import them either. Not, not to use not to commodify it, but you couldn't bring them in for the purpose of filming mm-hmm. a movie. That's, that sounds better. Um, you can't. And so that was one of the reasons why, like if they couldn't get Sabu, they had to get Sam Jaffe, I think. So I have a, cause, uh, but I, I honestly don't know. Like most likely the people that you see are probably uh, Mexican. That's true. It could also just be that. I mean, because I mean, m- most of these people you don't see, close up except Gunga Dean and the guru and the guru's son you see him a lot but i couldn't tell what was going on there but i mean i know they all often used uh, uh mexican extras to stand in for indians and other stuff although john ford was very careful to get actual indians to do it and they loved him for it um but yeah i mean it's it's just like if you look into this stuff it's i mean i don't think the answer is good or satisfying but i think that they probably I don't, I don't know that they wouldn't have hired an Indian actor to do Now, I think maybe the, the bad guy role, maybe not. Maybe they would have always gotten a, an American actor. But the, the speech he gives is really impressive. It's a really good villain speech. He's way – now, he is every bit as racist as Mola Ram from Temple of Doom, like as a caricature. In terms of like just like the basic idea of it. Although, I guess – I mean, I guess if you're in – if you're wearing makeup to make your skin look darker, that makes you kind of worse. But Mola Ram is really bad. Like yeah. Temple of Doom, like if it weren't for the fact that it shows that the like Indy is trying to help like the village of good Indians and like they aren't shown as being backward or gross or anything, the movie would be almost unforgivable in a sense. Like it's a fun well, movie, but yeah. it, it it is And also yeah. I just I find it I mean it's still obviously terrible i find it easier to forgive in a 1930s movie brothers intervened we are the friendless of this earth every man's hand is against us we have been kicked spat upon and driven to the hills like wild things my father was a dog and he was hanged his father was blown from a cannon's mouth. And what of your kinsmen, your fathers and their fathers and their fathers' fathers before them? Oh, my brothers, a new day is at hand. I have read the omens and dear good. Three nights ago, a jackal screamed upon the left. Another answered from the right at once. 
What does that mean, my brothers? It means the mother Kali, with all her arms outstretched, hugs us to her bosom, welcoming us back as tugs, tugs awakened from a sleep. The stuff he says about why he's kind of like Magneto, right? Like Magneto is a bad guy, but 95% of the stuff he's fighting for sounds good. It's just the way he's willing to get it. That's bad. Yeah. I always found myself siding with Magneto a lot more than I probably should. Yeah, I I love Magneto. You're great. Magneto, (sighs) the Cape, the helmet, the whole thing. It's, it's amazing. Um, I mean, but yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's, I always like villains like that. Um, because I like, I like just not being like a purely evil creature. I, 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 he's got a point. And he also like is the movie shows him to be way smarter than anybody he's fighting. Like he outsmarts the heroes. He outsmarts the British army. And if it weren't for a last minute act of heroism by Gunga Dean, he would have won. And like, he makes a great point uh, in a speech where he's talking about how, like, you know, you think that uh, the Indians, you know, you, you, you neglect the fact that we've been a civilization for longer, longer than just about anybody else. You know, I mean, not literally, but, but very, you know, they've, they've been around for a long time. They've got thousands of years of history and, and uh, you know, he says like, you know, we've got generations of, of lessons of on warfare and you think we don't know what we're doing. I'll show you. You're walking right into my trap in a very, return of the Jedi kind of moment. Um, but yeah, so basically, uh, Cary Grant sent, he says, I, we got to get help. Like I can't get out of here really. Cause he doesn't look like anyone else, but Gunga Dean can. So he's like, Gunga Dean, go get help. And then he creates a distraction by like singing some like barroom tavern song type thing. And, uh, and they catch him and then torture him. And, uh, Gunga Dean gets back to the others and he tells them what's happening. Sort of, it's not clear whether he tells them that there's yeah. like an army of dudes waiting for them, but um, he gets McChesney and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. to go back. And Douglas Fairbanks Jr. has this whole thing where McChesney's like, oh, no, you can't go back. You're out of the army now. Which I cannot understand for the life of me how he's not Douglas Fairbanks isn't just like, no, I am going because you, I'm not in the army and you can't tell me what to do because I'm a private citizen. Like that should be the response. It's like, no, I'm just going to go with you and you can't stop me. Or like, I'll follow you and you, there's nothing you can do about it. But instead, what exactly does he do? How does he convince him to, he says like, you'll have to reenlist and he signs the enlistment papers, but Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Makes him promise that he'll tear it up. He, 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 yeah. That he'll destroy it. And apparently McChesney had no intention of following through with that promise. It certainly didn't seem like it. Yeah. And then Joan Fontaine comes up. I wish I could remember the character's names, but I just can't. I only remember actor names and I'm sorry about that listeners. Um, but Joan Fontaine comes up and she's like, you can't go like, don't go, don't leave me now. And Douglas Fairbanks like, whatever, see you on the flip. I'm out. And he's like, that is so terrible. Why does she, she just leaves him after that. Right. I, I, I guess <laughs> it's, I, it's very it's unclear like, to me. You like, I can understand saying like, look, I, I just, I, I, I have to go, but like, he basically like he re he does reenlist at the end of the movie. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's or at least the forms aren't torn up. So he's in reenlisted. 
for however Which, long it, the term of enlistment. I mean, it's got to be several years. Yeah. So I think that means like he breaks up with Joan Fontaine over this, which like she probably bought a dress, you know, at this point. And I mean, they were, she, she was picking that they were picking out curtains. Yeah. <laughs> the only way this makes sense is if he is totally hot for Cary Grant, which if that's what he's really after, then I can buy it. But other than that, I have a hard time believing anyone would do this. I mean, like, it's just too yeah. mean. Also, frankly, they should just let Cary Grant die because he's obnoxious as hell in this movie. He he does deserve to die. Like the only good thing he does is sacrifice himself, or not sacrifice himself, but but give himself up as the distraction so Gunga Dean could get help. Because that does take some courage. Like he he realized that he he they were screwed, and he was the only one who could who he was going to have to to create the distraction so Gunga Dean could get out. And that was, I mean, he, he, he did not fare well in the movie, except that he ends up surviving, but he gets stabbed and tortured and, and he can't. And at the end of the movie, that's the weird thing is when they come back to get him, they all immediately get captured because Gunga Dean says he's been trying to tell them something the whole trip over there to the golden temple, but they weren't listening or like, you know, like, uh, McChesney wouldn't, wouldn't stop talking. And so they got, got there and didn't realize there's like an entire army of dudes waiting for him. And they get captured immediately. And it's like, it is kind of surprising because you picture it's going to be this big like shootout, but it's not. Yeah. They're just, they're just caught. And then they kind of like, so they all get caught, including Gunga Dean and they end up tricking the guru and capturing him. And then none of his soldiers will attack them as long as they have him. Cause he's like a religious figure. He's not just a, and he's also like they're you know, the second in command is his son. So, his son won't order them to attack and they end up, they end up taking the guru up to, for some reason they take him up to like the top of a tower, <laughs> which is like the worst place you can go. Cause you can't go anywhere else. And it's kind of, I like the predicament they're in. Cause it feels like a very like, Oh, we really messed up. Like this is really stupid because <laughs> every time they poke their heads up, there's like someone fires at them. And so, and the guru is like, makes a point of saying like, I, I'm the safest man here. Like as long as I'm here, like nothing will happen to you. That means something will happen to me. And then the brigade comes in and they hear them coming. And, uh, and the guru says, look, my men have laid a trap for them and they're walking right into it, coming to get you, which is the biggest plot hole in the movie. I think it is why there's an entire brigade of soldiers coming after three guys. Yeah, that, that seems a question and why the guru was so certain that would happen that he had time to. Yes. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Trap. That's a good point. Yeah. How did, why did he know they were that stupid? Um, although he could have prepared for an, an attack eventually because he was been doing raids against them. So he might've had a plan drawn up already. And once he saw them coming, then he could just order them into their positions. Cause that's like, he does have to do that. They aren't just waiting. And they won't get into their positions because they won't take their eyes off the guru as long as he's a prisoner. And the guru does something totally kick-ass, I thought. Oh, God, it's so cool. He just like goes, fine, if you won't, I'll, I'll solve this problem. And he jumps into a cobra pit, <laughs> which is funny because it reminds me a lot of the way Ming the Merciless uh, walks through his doom at the end of Flash Gordon. Like, it's like, it's just like, like nope, this is over. I'm out of here. <laughs> like, death by cobra. See ya. And then... <laughs> oh cobra pit i mean that is that is a way to go i gotta tell you like i 
voluntarily jumping into a cobra pit so your acolytes will attack the uh, invaders is that's got to be one of the top 10 ways to go i think it's pretty impressive i don't think i could jump into a cobra pit i don't think i could either you seem to think warfare in english invention have you never heard of chandragupta Maurya? He slaughtered all the armies left in India by Alexander the Great. India was a mighty nation then, while Englishmen still dwelt in caves and painted themselves blue. It is very simple. Your army will enter by that gap. Let them proceed halfway down this gorge. Those are my infantry, the best mountain fighters in the world. At a given signal, they will open fire on your troops, driving them forward into the trap. That is my artillery, rather neatly concealed, don't you think? My gunners greet them with a full salute. And finally, in come my horsemen. This is, gentlemen, my household cavalry, similar to that which guards the person of your Queen Empress. Each man is mounted on a valiant charger and eager to slay for his guru. The honor of the thundering and slaughter of your army falls to them. <laughs> I see it in your faces. Who is this ugly little savage to snarl so boldly at the British lion? Prime General's friends are not made of jewel swords and mustache wax. They are made of what is there and what is here. This is but the spring freshet that precedes the flood. From here we roll on, from village to town, from town to mighty city, ever mounting, ever widening, until at last my wave engulfs all India. My soldiers! He's awesome, and he has such conviction. It's like, it sucks that they had to paint him um, the actor because he does such a good job and he is like, they don't pull any punches about like the British have no business being in this country and I have every right to take it back from them. And you're kind of like nothing in the movie contradicts that. Just like, Oh yeah, you're kind of right. Like, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, also we're, you know, we're watching it in 2017. True. Yeah. We're probably putting our own uh, views on it, but there's no, the movie is, acknowledges and does not necessarily rebut colonialism, but is not pro-colonial. I, I, I don't think that it, maybe I just don't want it to be, but I don't really see that. I don't see anywhere where it's like, cause to be pro-colonial, you'd have to show that, Oh, these savages can't take care of themselves. The British are needed. They're necessary or they're a benevolent, uh, they're a benevolent, benevolent occupier and they're, they're doing what's best for everybody. And, I don't think the movie shows that it shows the British being like a bunch of bumbling, uh, uh, you know, lackwits who, who keep on scales, large and small wandering into trouble. Um, and the only person that really seems to have his act together is, is, is the guru. But yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's impossible to, you have no, you know, we're all have no choice, but to be modern and look at it with our, our uh, frame of reference. So perhaps things that were supposed to look heroic uh, for the British did not end up looking heroic because yeah, of when I watched true. it. 
So anyway, like the, the bad guys, they storm the tower after the guru sacrifices himself and stab almost everybody. They stab Gunga Dean. They stab Cary Grant. Gunga Dean grabs a bugle off of one of them and uh, climbs to the top of the dome on top of the tower and sounds a warning at the last possible moment, alerting the British to their presence, which somehow allows them to uh, avoid falling into the trap, I guess. I wasn't quite sure how that worked. I guess they have to go through like the narrow pass. Like what they were going to do is they were, I think they were going to go through like a, a, a choke point essentially. And that would allow, which, you know, like anybody who's knows, like, I think it's like the only thing I know about military strategy is like, don't have all your guys focused on like one thin area where they have to go through. Cause that's, that's where people will just pick you off. Like it's, and they were going to go through that area and they're just going to get shot at by people on either side. It was going to be a massacre. And I guess if you stop them from doing that and they start attacking the position that the enemy is actually in, then they have a chance. Um, but yeah, I don't know. But anyway, Gunga Dean gets shot right after doing this. And how do you feel about the way he goes out? Like it is 100% heroic. I don't think there's any doubt about that, but it's, it, it feels to me kind of sad. Like he, is dying for the sake of these people who did not respect him at all until it was too late. Yeah. I mean, I guess I was sort of expecting that in the entire movie because of the poem. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, that's true. I, I can't, I have to go. I, I should have watched the end of it again. Cause I can't quite remember. They're kind of yelling at him to get down. Right. Or are they not? Do they just let him go? I thought they just let him go, but I don't, maybe they do. Maybe they do. They might not be aware of what he's doing, actually. Now that I think about it, but they don't have the they don't have the presence of mind to do it. Um, but he does. They may be too too focused on their own survival, and yeah. And then for some reason, Rudyard Kipling is there. <laughs> he's literally with the army as they do this, and the colonel like they they have a, a nice burial for Gunga Dean, and the colonel's like. Mr. Kipling, please read that poem you wrote. <laughs> it's like he reads the last stance of the poem. And, uh, you know, it's it's weird. I feel like the movie, the ending is, is, is both thrilling in a way, the way it's shot and the way it plays out, but it's not satisfying because I don't feel like the heroes deserve to survive. Like, they should have all been killed. Like, what they did was really reckless and they're also all jerks yeah i don't know man this is this is a weird one how do you think why do you think ryan johnson would have screened this for the cast like what i'm not saying like that because it's like oh it's a politically incorrect movie which which it is no no no. but but, like what what it is in this movie that i mean i don't know i guess it is a fairly like classic adventure story it does. I mean, it's interesting because if it's, I felt kind of drawn in by the movie, even though at no point did I like any of the characters uh, all that much. I mean, I did end up kind of, I did like Sam Jaffe's uh, character. Like I, I did like Gunga Dean because you're supposed to like him. Like he, he's 100% likable, but I, it's not like, it's like with a kind of, it leaves a bitter taste in your mouth sort of because of, of the, the kind of patronizing way he's treated and also that the movie kind of treats him there's like i don't want to say literally noble savage type trope working here but there is that like oh these these primitive peoples are finer human beings than we'll ever be which is 
not the most destructive kind of racism, but there is something about it that's not. It's not great. It's not great. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, but it, it is better than saying, oh, they're worthless, but there's something kind of saying like, if you're saying that, oh, like, you know, don't judge a book by its cover, you're kind of saying that the cover sucks, you know? Well, yeah, especially because it was him, all this stuff with him, you know, like wanting to be part of the, of the British army and that. Yeah. Also sits uncomfortably. If he were played by Sabu or an actor Sabu's age, which is like, you know, in his late teens at this point, would it have seemed better? Not just like ignore the fact that Sabu wouldn't have been wearing body paint. Um, but like beside that, like if it was a, a someone who could convincingly play, like say if he was playing a 14 year old character who, who was enamored with the, the pomp and circumstance of the military, like would that. I, I think that would make a big difference actually. I, I think so too. Cause you can see something more of like our, it doesn't seem like he's like a, a childish childlike infantile foreigner, even though he's not a foreigner in this case, he's a native, but um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I did like, I did, I did like the ending of it. And I think my favorite character has to be the guru. Uh, Eduardo Cianelli's performance is just badass. I don't know. He's the only guy I feel like I, I could like get behind. <laughs> like, yeah, you're right. You're right, dude. <laughs> Not like, you know, kill them all. Like I want to see people be beheaded and stuff, but like, I was just, you know, like, yeah, you're, you got, you got a point, dude. Like, you know, it's, I think he's a better, like, uh, as like compared to not to, not to diss uh, Ian McKellen's performance as Magneto, which I think is still really good. But spiritually, I think the guru guy gets closer to, to the spirit of it, of that kind of villain. Yeah, he, he's really like, if you can get beyond the fact that it's a guy in brown face, which is like admittedly really hard to get beyond, like it's actually like, it's a good performance. Yeah. And, and, and the character has dignity. The character has, which unlike Gunga Dean kind of only has dignity in his sacrifice, but the guru has dignity from the beginning to the end. Ah, gentlemen, good news. Here is a sight that you make your hearts pound faster. Look. Good. Oh, those beautiful Scotties. I'll buy them all a beer apiece. Your comrade's coming chokes you with emotions. Seeing them this way recalls to you all manner of pleasant things. The gate of barrack life, old friendships, even England, even home. You bet it does, mister. Save your voices, gentlemen. They're coming here to your rescue. You tormenting fiend. You're so sure, Archer. Quite sure. It is my plan. Two come to rescue one. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a it's a tough one. But yeah, I, I guess like maybe just the 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 kind of camaraderie. If you overlook the fact that it's so lame, how they're just like, no girls allowed, stay out of our clubhouse type thing. You know, they're like pulling up the rope ladder after Joan Fontaine is like, I brought lollipops get lost sister you know it's 
the, there is kind of like a like you could see this kind of like a a sort of Finn and Poe and and I guess possibly like Rose and 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 other new characters like having this kind of yeah like this sort of like fun adventure like dramatic moments but also this like lightheartedness to it yeah i mean it does have a kind of with the exception of the ballroom scene there's kind of a a propulsiveness to the story like it doesn't it doesn't overstay its welcome in most cases and the the threat of the enemy is very well established i think like Hiya friends, hope you're enjoying this uh, great show on Gunga Dean. I certainly enjoyed making it. I had a great time with Miss Emily Lynn. She is fantastic. Uh, a great guest, a great podcaster, a great personality, and a great person, as far as I can tell. I've, uh, you know, I've, I've met her. She is, she is a great person. I, 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 I have no reason not to believe that. Um, so right now I'm taking my coffee break, and this is the time of the podcast where I like to think about how lucky I am to have friends and listeners like you. But you know what? I wouldn't just be lucky. I'd be stoked, as the kids say. Like back in 2004, whenever they said that, I'd be, I'd be way feeling super duper crazy lucky, a lot better. Still, man, I don't know. Why do I write this stuff out before I say it? I never, it never comes even close. If you took a couple, but I'd be stoked, as the kids say, back in like 2004 or something, if you took a couple minutes to get on iTunes and subscribe, even if you don't listen to podcasts through iTunes, in fact, especially if you don't, and give the show a, fi- uh, give the show a five-star review. Um, yes, I know that every podcast out there asks you to do that. I'm not going to weigh in on whether that's a reasonable expectation. However, I will say, unlike most podcasts you listen to, this show is incredibly, insanely, I dare say stupidly and self-destructively niche. Uh, nobody else is going to do a star wars podcast that'll spend over an hour talking about a movie like gunga dean why because most fans don't give a rat's red ass now is this the only way to be a star wars fan of course not but there are plenty of valid ways to be a fan of something without understanding it i remember my grandma listening to radio broadcasts of every indiana pacers game in a season without fail and she couldn't have told you the difference between a forward and a power forward to save her sweet life But if you like this podcast, it puts you in the minority of fandom that isn't content to simply love Star Wars. You're one of those beautiful weirdos who wants to take it apart and see how it works. And if I'm scratching that itch for you, please take a couple seconds to open up iTunes in your Apple Podcast app and search Wikigenome Project and subscribe and give it a five-star salute. So, although I have a great question to answer from a five-star iTunes review, I think I'm going to save that for the next episode because it's the only question I have left and I don't want to waste it. But also because this is the last show I'm going to be uploading before The Last Jedi comes out. So it's my last chance to put out some predictions out there on the record before we all see the movie. My success rate for Star Wars predictions is kind of a lot like a batting average. I'm proud of it. It's maybe even braggable, but I'm still only right like three times out of ten. Probably more like two, 2.5 times out of ten. You know, I'm like batting averages. I'm, I'm happy to swing and miss on these because I love being surprised. Now... There's no spoilers here because I don't know if any of this is true. But as you know, my uncanny, incredible accuracy means some of it might be true, but you won't know which one. So if you really don't want to know, you really want to go in cold, that's fine. Because the point of this is not to inform you now. It is to prove myself right later. So I'm thinking ahead. Um, And uh, first and foremost, uh, you know what? I'll do this. I'll do the big ones later. Uh, I'll do some easy ones now, and then I'll move the big ones to the very end of the show. That way, if you don't want to hear the ones I'm really confident in, 
um, you don't have to. Uh, so here's one. Uh, okay, so here here's one. This is a, this is a minor one. It really has nothing to do with the plot, but I think that um, this movie is going to. So, so we had this little feature ad out, right? Where Ryan Johnson's talking about he's he's watching Daisy Ridley train with her stick, and uh, she's doing some cool moves. And he's saying that this scene she's training for is a scene where she has some time to herself on the island, and she decides to do some uh, stick stick fighting drills. And she realizes halfway through, wait a second, why am I doing stick fighting drills when I've got a lightsaber? Um, and she pulls out the lightsaber and then they show you just a couple, like a second and a half of footage from the movie. And it shows Ray holding and moving the lightsaber in a really weird, awkward way. I predict that Luke is going to be watching her do this and he's going to point out something about how a lightsaber is not a stick. It's not a staff. It's not, you don't it's not used like a staff to basically keep people at a distance until you can thwack them in the, in the noggin. Um, it's a totally different kind of weapon and you don't need to twirl it around. Um, there's no reason to do that uh, because it's a white hot death rod that will cut through things f- through through just sheer heat alone. Like momentum, friction, speed really has nothing to do with it. You know, it, it, I now that would be a kind of a weird thing to to do, but it's not impossible. Like I, 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 I feel like people would understand that you don't you wouldn't fight with a sword weapon the way you would fight with a stick. Um, so yeah, so stick around. Uh, at the end of the show, you're going to hear like the outro jingle and all that. And then it's going to go back into uh, Coffee Break Redux. And you're going to get probably close to, a, I, I would say, at least 20 minutes of me just rambling on about stuff that I think is going to happen um, so I can win bets later. So really quick, I, I want to talk about the thuggy historically, and then, and then we'll very quickly cover uh, the Frida Nod uprising, which I have trouble making sense of at all. So that, that shouldn't take too long. Um, but the thuggy uh, were, were interesting. I was, I was interested to learn they, they were real. Uh, they they uh, were uh, mass murderers. It's not clear whether they were literally a cult or whether they just had like cult-like aspects to them. But they, uh, they were f- infamous for like kind of joining caravans of sorts and, and like kind of separately, but they would all have a plan. They'd be like, I'm going to join up the caravan at this point and you're going to join up with them at that point. And we're going to talk to them and kind of become known by known by everybody and trusted. And then at night they strangled people and, and, uh, and, uh, and dumped them into wells and stuff like that. Stole their stuff. And uh, they actually, they rarely, if ever attacked the British while the British were occupying the country. But, they were a huge problem for the British because they were killing civilians and for various reasons that cannot go unpunished. So when they kind of made a resurgence and they, by some accounts killed like millions of people over their career over the centuries, like, but it's not, nobody knows for sure. It's, it's really hard to tell, but they, they did. uh, So just like in temple of doom and in this movie, they did worship uh, Kali Although I think that the way that we in the West view the goddess Kali is kind of different than how she is supposed to be viewed. Um, This I do know something about more than what Wikipedia told me. Um, But Kali, like all the different manifestations of, of 
all the different gods and goddesses in Hinduism are actually the same entity. They're just manifestations of different aspects of, of that one God. So the God is like male and female emanations. It's very Blakeian actually in a weird way. Um, I just lost almost all of what little audience I have by saying, that. but, um, <laughs> Oh yeah, good. Okay. Unsubscribe. Uh, but it, it's, uh, it's the, there it's, she's a counter, like the female emanation or counterpart to, uh, Shiva or Shiva, um, the, 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 the aspect of the divine that is destructive, which is destruction for the sake of creation. And, um, so if the accounts of the thuggy being cultists are accurate, then they were literally killing people to like renew the, to appease the, the goddess Kali and, and thereby like ensure the renewal of the, of the human race or something like that. But some historians believe that they were just criminals who were stealing stuff and, and terrorizing people. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a very complicated and weird, mysterious history. I do recommend you look it up if you're interested. It's fascinating. It's fascinating stuff. Um, how, how large of a group was it? I don't know, but it must've been pretty large if they could kill as many people as they're said to have. Um, they were, uh, were known to at least at certain points in their tenure as, as the big bad dudes of, uh, that part of India were known to, um, actually kind of end up adopting the, uh, child, the children of their, of their, some of their victims. And they would, um, so that they would expand their numbers that way. Um, which is very, uh, first order of them, I guess, isn't it? But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think there's any conclusive, a lot of the accounts we have of them are not necessarily from reliable sources or okay. yeah, it, it's really, it's mystery. It's a, it's a mystery. They're like, they're kind of like ninjas. Like we know they existed. There's historical accounts of them, but it's very hard to find any like consensus opinion on what they did, where they came from or, or why they did what they did. So I don't know. That's the best I can do. <laughs> they're, they're fascinating. And, um, and Kali is, uh, as you would expect, um, uh, worshipped all over India, um, but in in uh, these parts of India, I think still uh, very much so is kind of like the the major. Um, but nobody, she's not nobody. You're making like blood sacrifices to her or anything like that. But it's like uh, that aspect of it is one of the reasons why it's kind of like. Although I hate to use the word problematic, like that's that's one of the things that does make it difficult because it is talking about somebody's religion and culture. It really does exist, and they're they're showing the worst possible side of it. Um, but yeah, so the Frida Nod uprising. I do you remember these comic books? No, I didn't. I didn't ever read these. Me neither. I i i was I was very much. Uh, let's see, what is this? Nineteen ninety three, nineteen ninety four. August second was the first issue. It's two issues. August second, nineteen ninety four, and it's written by. I should give the credits just to be just to be nice to the creators is uh, the writer is tom vich 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 v-e-i-t-c-h uh penciler is tony tony atkins um it's it's interesting i know that the tales of the jedi series was started by i think kevin j anderson who like did some of the some of the novels that I probably will never, ever read again. The, the ones with like the, the sun crusher ship that 
uh, I don't know whether you read those. No, I know. I know the name. Like it's one that I've seen on the cover of a bunch of Star Wars novels that I haven't read. <laughs> yeah, it's not. I mean, they're not well regarded nowadays. But I'm I'm hesitant to revisit. I really did like them when I was like eleven, but I was eleven. So yeah. But um, they they uh, he had he's he's one of those guys in kind of in the had his, his heyday was in the dark era of star, the dark ages of star Wars fandom in the early nineties when there was nothing, the late eighties, early nineties, there was nothing except for the role-playing game and those Timothy Zahn novels. And then Kevin J Anderson stuff. And he did a cool, uh, he did some cool stuff for Lucasfilm at the time. Like he did uh, the, they had a art book that was like, it was kind of like a, a stealth uh, Ralph McQuarrie art book. I can't remember what it's called. I think it's like the illustrated star Wars galaxy or something. And they just took the cool stuff from Ralph McQuarrie's concept art and then commissioned a few new things and then had Kevin J Anderson write travelogue type stuff in universe as like characters within the galaxy of like about like, uh, Dagobah and Hoth and cloud city and Tatooine and stuff like that. And Coruscant. And it's actually pretty cool. Oh, Oh, he wrote the, he wrote the young Jedi. He wrote some of the young Jedi Knight stuff so i would have read some of those yeah those i didn't read i don't know any much about them but yeah he did that's right um so he kind of set up this world but it's kind of weird because it takes place the tales of the jedi series takes place four thousand years give or take before uh episode four so it is really far back it's it predates like the knights of the older public type stuff um and for that reason it's really interesting to me uh the artwork the artist did a good job in, in the series of showing a world that looked star Warsy but was very different. Like in some cases it's kind of too old fashioned, like literally old. I think there are like ships that look like sailboats kind of, it's just kind of weird. Um, but that's what I mostly remember from this. Um, so the free to not uprising is basically like earlier in the, in the comic series, they established that there's this old, Sith master of some kind named Frieden Nod, who they tell bits and pieces of his backstory. And then they fast forward to uh, this story, which is about like, which takes place 400 years after Frieden Nod was defeated. And it's on the planet of Onderon. And he was a ruler of some kind on this planet. And, and they're and the Jedi have put down like a, they've, they've quelled a, a massive conflict, some kind of war between the city dwellers and the beast riders. And I don't really know whether there were stories about this or not. It pops up again in Knights of the old Republic two, uh, the video game. I know this because I'm stuck there right now. <laughs> I'm trying to play it for my other show when I like can't get past Onderon and it, but it references all this stuff. It was really kind of interesting that it, I went back to this, uh, without realizing that there was a connection, but so there, what the, after they, finish the war the jedi are sent there and there's like a what's the what's the jedi master's name They're, they've got this is pre-yoda so the big jedi guy is like arca arca something he's a human but he's like way super old and his like face looks like uh the grand canyon and he's got long white hair he looks sort of like the crypt keeper yeah he does yeah um and he decides that he brings along some of his apprentices one of them is like Uluk Keldora or something like that. It's really not important to know. I mean, I, th- I think they continue on and have stories of their own, but at this point they don't seem to do anything that requires me to remember their names. So they're, 
they find out that, oh, there's like dark force like polluting this planet. And it's the body of of Frida Nod and his queen, who I thought was named Amanda, but it's actually Amanoa. But it, the O looks like a D. I'm like, Queen Amanda. I was like, that's kind of. Yeah, I, I actually had to like go back and like zoom in and look at that because I thought the same. I'm like, her name can't be Amanda. So they dig up their sarcophagi and are going to relocate them on a moon um, because they don't want it to. They want to remove like the, the the dark force that's that's creating conflict on the planet. And this is interesting because they also reference this later when they fight uh, some of the bad guys that the good guys feel like the dark side is weighing down on them and making them feel like the situation is hopeless. And this is interesting to me because it shows me that somebody had shown had allowed Kevin J. Anderson to read the early drafts of star Wars, because that's something that, uh, and I can't remember which one of the drafts it is, but the precursor character to Han Solo, I think this might've even been back when he was like a lizard man. Um, when they're on the death star starts freaking out. Like he has like a, like a freak out moment and he feels like everything's hopeless. We're going to die. We're all going to die here. Nobody's ever going to know what happened to us. And the Luke Skywalker character is like, no, no snap out of it. That's the dark side. That's the bogging force, you know, weighing in on you. It makes you feel like you, you can't win. Um, and that's an interesting element that is not really present anymore in Star Wars. Now, how do you how do you feel about that element? Because I I'm sort of not sure whether I like it or not. I the thing the reason why I think it was taken out of the movie is because it's hard to show. If you just show somebody freaking out for no apparent reason, it's it's hard to communicate that. I think visually, like you can have like the the like the the distant like kettle drum rumbling that you have when Darth Vader does something evil with the Force, but I think it's hard to, unless you have them actually hallucinate. Yeah. I think that's, that's how true. you, I think it's how you'd have to do it. Like, I mean, that's kind of what happens to Luke in the cave on Dagobah. Like it's a place that's strong with the dark side and it makes him freak out and he has a weird vision, but it doesn't, I do like the idea that powerful Jedi can sway the tide of battle using their like powers. And this is something that, was suggested in those early drafts and Tim's on kind of ran with it in his first novels. Cause he talks about how Thrawn recognized that the, the battle of Endor, the tide shifted before the death star was blown up. It shifted about the time that the emperor would have been killed, which suggests that like in, in the, in the, the Imperial Navy started acting erratic. Like they had no, like they had lost control even though they hadn't. And he, you know, those novels suggest there's like a sort of battle meditation that they call it. And that is a, I think, I don't know whether that's back in the canon or not, but it's kind of the same thing. It's like you influence people's minds and have them work harmoniously or, or have them freak out, I guess. I don't know. I don't know how much I like. I feel like I like the idea that I don't know. I don't, maybe I shouldn't get into this too much. Like it's kind of a, we can talk about this on another episode, but yeah, I guess I like the idea of it. I don't know whether it would work in a movie, but yeah, anyway, I mean, basically long story short in this story, they, um, the sarcophagi gets stolen by a, uh, very Vader esque dude named Warb Null. Ugh. Ugh. Who has like cool armor except for his helmet. I think it was a bit, um, video gamey. Yeah. yeah. He only reminded me of is the bad guy from the Micronauts comic. Do you remember Micronauts? Maybe not. I guess this is. I don't think I ever read Micronauts. It's it has people say it's good. I've never looked at it again. I think the bad guy was like Baron Kaza or something like that, and he looks just like this. Um, 
but yeah, he, he actually gets punked out pretty quickly, this guy. And uh, yeah, it's weird. They, they, they steal the sarcophagi. They disappear back into the ground in their drill ship, which seems like a very like shredder and Krang type thing to do. Um, and the Jedi Knights go looking for answers and they talk to the King. Who's this like super decrepit old man. Who's like supported by a kind of weird robo armature. Uh, like, like a really skeletal looking thing that connects to the outside of his body, which is, I thought creepy, but really kind of cool in a way. What did, what did you think about that? I liked it. I feel like the most of the art in this book is is really strong and at least interesting. What did, what visually? Did, what did you think of this version of the Jedi? Because they don't. This is pre Phantom Menace, and they they definitely don't follow that pattern. They're not wearing like robes or anything. They all kind of have their own style. Yeah, it doesn't seem as uh, I guess uniform like this is what the jedi are but i guess i figured doing four thousand years earlier it shouldn't be exactly the same yeah i mean this so i don't want to say that this is what i imagined as a kid what like the heyday of the jedi was like exactly but it's way closer to what i thought they would be like the kinds of the way they would dress the kinds of things they would be doing the kinds of adventures they would have. They, I mean, they seem a lot cooler than the prequel Jedi. I mean, it's interesting because they're, they, they're basically taking like a, a, they're basically doing like they're, they're grave robbing essentially. It's like what they're doing is really kind of weird. Cause it's like, there's no, I don't, I guess Andron is part of the Republic, but they don't really talk about the Republic very much at all the Jedi just seem to be like a free, free floating, like self-justifying peacekeeping force of some kind. Yeah. I, I did feel like they don't have a whole lot of uh, like rigidity or rules or they're just sort of this loose coalition of, I, I mean, I guess good guys. Yeah. They come in this series. I think this group of Jedi come from a planet called Osis, Osis, which is like a, a library planet or something like that. It's really interesting. Like they don't, their base isn't on Coruscant. It's on this library moon of some kind. It's like where all this lore is, is kept. And I, I mean, honestly, I don't, you know, who actually does have a lot of fondness for the series is, is steel Saunders. Um, he would know more about it than I would, but yeah, I think this really to him probably cause he does look back on it fondly. This probably is what he imagined the Jedi were like. Exactly. I, I always thought of them. I guess I just didn't have the imagination to think of them as like a huge force of people. Like I always kind of thought there was like never that many of them because the story went at the time that Darth Vader slaughtered them all, which meant that there couldn't have been that many of them. Like he, he can't personally be killing everybody Yeah, if there's thousands of them. So it seemed to me like I was thinking more like in the, like the, the mid hundreds at most, but that, and that's kind of what you see. But in this, in, in this comic, like the Sith is like a legit religion that, that like normal non warrior type people 
adhere or, or adherence of like King Amen or whatever his name is. The guy in the armature is like a, a Sith acolyte of some kind. Yeah, it wasn't entirely clear to me in this book what the Sith are. I know that. I mean, this predates them using Darth as like a prefix for their names, which I appreciate because I, I feel like that's been that to me just seems like a marketing move. Like, oh, well, we got a new bad guy. Let's call him Darth something. And that way people will tune in because they like Darth Vader. But and maybe that's just me being cynical. But in I I, th- I do think that was a, a later idea. And these people are all just they have other weird, dumb Star Wars names like Frieda Nod <laughs> and Queen Amanda. Um <laughs> But it seems like the Sith are already pretty ancient because there's a subplot of these like two, like this brother and sister who steal a Sith lore cube from what are they called? Is it a hol- hologram? No, holo- holocron. That's right. Hol- holocron. Oh man, I just outed myself here. That's I'm my ignorance about a certain definitely holocron. You're you're def- that's definitely it. The only reason I know that is cuz I've been watching Clone It's Wars. interesting that the idea has been around for so long though. Yeah, that is. I didn't realize that. It's um but yeah, so they like steal a Sith holocron from a museum <laughs> in Coruscant, which I thought was kind of funny. I just imagine going to like the Museum of Natural History in New York and be like taking like a mastodon tusk or something like All right, cough really loud. <laughs> I'm going to break this thing off. <laughs> All right, let's let's cheese it. Um, and then they then they realize, oh, we can't read this. Let's go find somebody who knows how to read it. And they're like, oh, there's this like Sith catastrophe happening on Onderon. We'll go there and ask somebody. And they do. And the ghost of Freedon Nan appears to them and like tells them they're like his chosen successors or something like that. And that plot must go somewhere else after this these two issues because it's not resolved. Um, but those characters were interesting. They're like naive bad guys, like want to be bad guys. It's, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like I could go somewhere else with this at some other time. Cause there's more tales of the Jedi to, to explore. So we'll just kind of leave it at that. But basically they, they end up solving the problem by one of the Jedi chopping up the armature that the bad guys attached to. And that kind of fixes it. <laughs> then they take the sarcophagi and, and, and ditch the, <laughs> ditch it on some moon and that that ends it uh kind of crazy kind of weird there's some cool looking jedi though uh one of the things i do remember from this is that i think uh the woman jedi who like leads the second team that's in issue two is uh i think her name is nomi or naomi sunrider which is kind of one of those lame like skywalker pseudo names but which i don't like yeah i feel like skywalker should be the only one that fits that pattern but whatever and she i was glancing around because i bought the the tales of the jedi omnibus because there aren't that many of them and um i got that and was checking it out and she's like a she's a mother at this point so she already has children and it's interesting because you see her like raising jedi children and how like i think i think if i'm reading it correctly if i'm remembering it correctly it's like it's like the whole Jedi commune of sorts on this library planet helps raise the kids. It's very interesting and it's, uh, it's cool. And that I do, I will say is something that I always thought Luke's mother was a Jedi too. And I don't know why, because nothing indicates that, but I always assumed it was true. 
Um, and that that was kind of how I imagined. Like, I I kind of like that better than the the Jedi must have no attachment. I, stuff. I don't want to get into that. You know, I I, I agree. <laughs> I don't. I don't. That to me seems like a plot contrivance that was done so he'll have something to rebel against. But I don't like it. I don't like the Jedi being quasi celibate. Uh, I just, I just don't get it. I like the idea of just like Jedi communes and Jedi, like just straight up getting it on and uh, you know, like having like, you know, there could be like, you know, whole, whole, you have a whole romance stories about Jedi, you know, tragic Jedi love stories and things like that. I don't know, but I, I don't know. I don't I honestly don't know whether tales of the Jedi delivered what I would have wanted. Um, but it is interesting. And I, I did enjoy looking at this comic. Um, I don't know whether I can go any further than that. I kind of, I started doing this thing with the last episode where I, on the chasers, I kind of think of whether I, I would include these works in like the pseudo canon of like quality or otherwise interesting old star Wars stories that are worth checking out even today. And I kind of want to say this one is just because I like the bad guy. I like the, mm-hmm. the idea of a super frail old like skeleton man who's like kept mobile by this weird exoskeleton thing. It's like the spindly thing that keeps him a lot, uh, keeps him mobile. It's interesting. And I do like the, the kind of, the kind of problems that the Jedi were asked to solve, which is interesting, which is like a spiritual plague on a planet that incites violence created by the corpse of this evil space wizard. I mean, that's kind of cool. It, no, yeah, it is. I, I'd have to, I think like I'd have to read more of these to know whether I'd recommend it. Yeah, that's true. So we'll, we'll give it, we'll, we'll give it a, uh, a, potential pass but but uh uh need more input we need need more um that's what johnny five would say oh my god need more input input is that what he said like he's input am i or am i yeah input that's what no well i i mean i think that's a terrible impression what he says input when he's when he's like super reading the dictionary and stuff yeah he doesn't sound like uh Abe Vigoda, but he, um, I don't know what I was doing there, but, uh, it's <laughs> yeah. When he's talking, when he's in Ali Sheedy's living room and he's like reading all her encyclopedia. Yeah. Stephanie. Ali Sheedy. I, I use their actors' names. Damn it. I don't remember the characters' names. There's Steve Gutenberg. Well, well, I, I mean, God damn. Why do I remember her? I watched that movie so many times when I was a kid. I probably saw it as many times as I saw star Wars. I'm not joking. Like I saw that a ton as a kid, but I haven't watched it in. And, I mean, to tie it all in, years. Fisher Stevens and Brownface. Brownface. <laughs> wow. There we go. That must have been just in the back of my mind, like in just floating around the old uh, cerebellum back there, the old, or prefrontal, I don't know where it goes, prefrontal cortex, wherever bad ideas go. And uh, they, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, anyway, that's it for the, this episode. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Emily. I really, really appreciate it. And I, uh, too good of a time talking about Gunga Dean with you. Oh no, thanks for having me on. I, I I really like this idea of going through all these old movies and stuff. Star Wars is a great gateway drug to other stuff. I I firmly believe that. And uh, if you want uh, pure Star Wars talk from Emily, you should check out her show, The Canto by Dispatch, which she does with downtown Brittany Brown, another uh, good friend of both of ours. And it's fantastic. It's definitely worth listening to. Oh, thank um, you. Check it out. 
And uh, remember, uh, if you want me to answer one of your questions, give me uh, give the Wiki Genome Project a five star review on iTunes and ask a question in that review, and I will answer that question during the coffee break middle segment of the thing of the show. Um, I put a lot of probably too much effort into those. Anyway, uh, I also you can check out my other show. It's about video games. It's called. Hardcore Gaming 101, uh, we, we're ranking the top 47,000 video games of all time. It's really dumb, but it, it's fun. Uh, and actually, we're going to have uh, the one and only Haas Burkhart up on an uh, upcoming episode. Going to record that with them, I think, tomorrow night? Oh, nice. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to be talking Knights of the Old Republic. We're going to be talking uh, a ripoff of the Atari uh, 2600 Empire Strikes Back game called Attack of the Mutant Camels. Um and if you're a patriot, uh, no joke, no joke. It's uh, it's pretty cool. So instead of uh, ad ads coming at you, it's gigantic uh, drama berries. Oh my god, that's amazing! Uh, it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating, yeah. And uh, I think we're even going to do that uh, weird uh, Sega arcade game, the Star Wars arcade game, um, as a Patreon bonus if you're donating to the Hardcore Gaming One on Patreon. Um, but you don't have to do that yet. Just check it out first, and then donate. Uh, because uh, you might like it. Anyway, uh, that's all uh, for this episode, and uh, I hope you'll join us uh, next week. I don't know what we'll be doing, but we'll be doing something cool. We'll be continuing the Last Jedi thing, and until next time, so long, suckers! That's my that's my sign out now. That's yeah, good. I imagine like stealing like an idol from somebody's hands and jumping into a biplane and saying, so long, suckers, as I'm taking off down the runway, laughing like the Indiana Jones game. Might even say yoink when I take the idol. Yoink! <laughs> So long, Hey everybody, you still there? You still sticking around? You ready to hear some more of my um, predictions for The Last Jedi? It's uh, Right now I'm recording this. It is 11 p.m. Um, on Tuesday, I think the 12th, 13, 14. So I'll be seeing it on in, in uh, two more days, one, one on the night of Thursday the 14th. Um, can't wait, but this is really my last chance to get out my proof that I had some ideas about The Force Awakens, and if even some of them are right, I'll feel pretty good. Um, so first and foremost, raise parentage. I'm on uh, team raise a nobody, and I always have been. If there's any connection between her and the Skywalkers, I'd say it's that her parents were murdered because of just such a connection. Like they were students of his and they were murdered or something like that, or, or they were otherwise associated with them and they were killed. Uh, I think that The Last Jedi's promo stuff is sending strong signals that Rey and Kylo, possibly even Kylo and Luke, will not exactly team up, but we'll find some kind of common ground. I think the possibility that Kylo killed Rey's parents is uh, pretty low for that reason. Um, the one thing Star Wars has never done, but definitely needs to do sometime, is have a villain that's actually worth siding with. Although the audience will not easily forgive Kylo Ren and may never forgive him, I predict he's going to tell Rey something completely true and sympathetic about their past in some way. Perhaps it's about how he saved her life as a child. Uh, maybe that dream vision in episode seven in the force back is 100% literal and Kylo really did stop uh, the dude in the salad bowl hat from clobbering baby Ray. So uh, other people have theorized this as well. Um, I don't think I, I did. I don't think I came up with this thought until I heard somebody else have it. And I wish I could credit the person who it is, but uh, there's, there's a possibility that baby Ray used uh, was, or like or younger Ray was kind of like a freak child. 
some kind of dangerous child with crazy powers and she may have been inadvertently responsible for burning down Luke's school. Um, perhaps Kylo took baby Ray and used her as a weapon like, like an Ark of the Covenant to slay his enemies. Um, perhaps he looked at her and saw a kindred spirit, another child, unlucky enough to be born amidst someone else's grand destiny and showed pity on her and left her on Jakku where she would be harmless and go unnoticed forever, right? Um, perhaps saving the little girl was the last truly good thing Kylo Ren did and now he sees her return as a sign that he was wrong to follow Luke or Snoke or both and that maybe he should have struck out on his own. Another issue, um, where does Rey's power come from? I think if she's related to anyone important, uh, I'd say it's a sort of first family of the Force. These like bearers of the original Jedi Knight genes in some respect. Um, They'd be people we've never met. Uh, Why do I think this? Well, it's one of those increasingly few veins of George Lucas's early Star Wars drafts, drafts that hasn't been tapped yet. And as I said in this episode earlier, I I think it's territory that Ryan Johnson might want to explore in later movies. Uh, Perhaps the horrible truth that Luke discovers on Octu is that the Jedi betrayed this first family, marooned them somewhere. Perhaps Snoke himself is another descendant. Perhaps perhaps the reason his skin tone uh, was made more human for The Last Jedi, because I think it was originally supposed to be pretty pretty pallid, uh, kind of white, like bone white almost. Um, I think one of the reasons why he might have got his skin pinked up a little bit for this movie is that he might be partly human. Um, one thing I wish I'd explored with Emily Lynn for this episode is the possibility that the guru in Gunga Dean was Ryan Johnson's kind of pole star and inspiration for writing Snoke in Snoke's dialogue and Snoke's kind of wh- whatever tidbits of backstory we get in this. Andy Serkis has said that Snoke has a reason for hating the good guys. Um, I'm kind of less convinced that Snoke is a distant relative of Rey than I am of the idea that Snoke is in some way connected to this ancient history that Luke has uncovered at the first Jedi temple. And one thing star Wars has never touched upon is like, at least the movies haven't is like the great ancient evil that's sealed up in a mansion vault somewhere. Um, that trope it's been done to death. Yeah, but it hasn't been done in a star Wars movie. And when, uh, mere mortals are tasked with writing a star Wars movie, they are likely to turn to a unused details from early drafts of the star Wars movies. Um, and B adventure fantasy tropes that have been done in everything but star Wars. So that's a possibility. Um, I don't think Kylo takes a shot at his mom uh, in that scene. I think that happens pretty early on. I think he can't bring himself to do it, or he delays his shot so long that it it falls short of the mark. Um, For one, I think that because these trailers tease that that decision so hard, um, and they wouldn't do that if the end result was Kylo killing Leia, um, he might have to leave it to a comrade and hope that they fail. I think Kylo is going to be... uh, Now, this almost has been confirmed. I'm not even sure that... I want to say this one, but it's not been confirmed by a rumor. It's just been almost, it seems like it's like the actors have said as much that Kylo gets discarded by Snoke for his weakness or fragility that uh, Snoke wants to choose Ray as the, as the shinier object, you know, that uh, the, the, the brighter potential. Um, and my preferred option is that Kylo discards Snoke. Um, and cause I like that cause it gives us back this unused plot from empire strikes back where Vader announces that, you know, he's plotting to destroy the emperor that he wants Luke to join him and they're going to rule the galaxy as father and son. They're going to kill the emperor. Um, it's something that is completely abandoned for the next movie. And it was consciously abandoned by George Lucas because he felt like you couldn't squeeze in enough with that movie. And you know, you got to get those Ewoks in there. He even said that he even said that. So, <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a really cool idea that that just hasn't been done. Um, 
Wouldn't it be much cooler to see Darth Vader try to execute a plot against the Emperor than just blindly obey him? I think it would. And I think we're going to get some of that in The Last Jedi one way or the other, or at least we'll get the seeds of it planted for the next movie. Uh, I think the Resistance will take down the First Order walkers by, well, this is not my idea at all. I gotta say that. So maybe I just shouldn't mention it. Um, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna mention this one because it's definitely not my idea. So there's no point in taking credit for it. Uh, the reason Luke wants the Jedi to end is going to have nothing to do with their abject failure in the prequels. Um, I think Luke would have learned about whatever happened in the prequel era a long time ago because there are still lots of people around who would remember exactly what happened um, or would know enough about it that he would get the idea. I don't think there's any way to spin those stories or that history that doesn't make them look like absolute fools who deserve to be extinguished. Um, and that's, I don't think, was intentional when those movies were made. I think that's something that's been the gloss that's been added to the text since then through the cartoon, because one of the, my favorite things about George Lucas, but also one of my least favorite things, um, depending on how he uses it is his willingness to go back and rewrite the rules of what he's already done. Um, he's always changing things. He's always going back and revising history and then claiming that it was always supposed to be that way. That's the part I don't like, but, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's going to come up because I don't think most people would have. Well, anyway, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't think it would have also would, I don't think that would have much to do with what Luke discovered on Octo. Um, I think, or Oct, what are we calling it now? Octo? Um, again, uh, I think, I think what Luke, uh, want, why he wants the Jedi to end has a lot more to do with him um, and what he knows happened to Ben Solo and Darth Vader uh, than it does with like necessarily what he learns, or it's as much about that as it is uh, what he learns. He's going to learn um, something about his own failings for sure or decide that it's time for him to end because the only way the Jedi can come back is through him. Luke's kind of the conduit and he's not willing to risk creating yet another monster because he's seen that all, all it takes is one evil Jedi to ruin the galaxy. And this keeps happening. So on balance, I think anybody would decide, you know what, maybe the Jedi, not such a great idea. Um, so he may also believe that he's tainted by the dark side. I mean, think about this, his choice to fight Darth Vader and empire strikes back will come back in some form um, I'm sure because he's going to be warning Ray about not doing what he did his choice to fight Vader and Empire Strikes Back. Um, you know, it's I mean, most people consider that to be a start down the dark side or the dark path or that he was risking it. He was exposing himself to evil in a way that he wasn't prepared to do. And as Yoda says, maybe once you start down the dark path, it really will dominate your destiny forever. And uh, whether that's true or not, Luke might end up believing it, that even though he um destroyed the emperor and and redeemed vader in a sense that he's nonetheless tainted by it you know it's not really that weird of a concept um the lord of the rings ends and like frodo can't stay in like the regular part of the world anymore because he's been with the evil ring for so long that it's like ruining his mind and body and that he goes to live with the elves on some island where they're going to take care of him probably just going to keep him really drunk is what i think they're going to do but you know who knows special elf medicine yes it's uh, called um, uh, Johnny Walker Elixir Black. Enjoy. Um, I think the A-Wings, uh, this is some littler stuff. I think the A-Wings and the bombers and stuff were brought in by Admiral Holdo, Vice Admiral Holdo. I think Holdo is a vice admiral because uh, she's the vice admiral of what's left of the Republic Starfleet. We saw a lot of it get destroyed in The Force Awakens. And in order for this uh, movie to have any tension, they've got to be still mostly destroyed. Um, so she was like vice admiral to the admiral in the sense that 
the vice president is in charge if the president dies or is impeached or otherwise removed from office. Um, so Holdo has this kind of legitimacy, and that's where the power struggle between her and Leia might come from. The resistance will really need the, uh, the Republic's help, and they will need to uh, merge with uh, resistance, and Leia is going to get pushed out. And uh, I think that she may even um, come to accept this, that once she, if she manages to get everybody to survive the, the all-out assault from the First Order, that she'll feel like her her mission in life is done that she's done it and now it's up to the next generation to to finish it um one thing i can't figure out is what finn and rose and dj could possibly be trying to do uh, i can't imagine what kind of plan would hang entirely on them and require them to go to a casino planet it seems like it's probably going to be something that doesn't start out as a super big deal but it becomes a bigger deal so maybe they end up on the first orders like mega super ship because circumstances kind of force them into it i do think that if they are in fact going to bust dj out of prison and that's their mission um that he's going to betray them why because uh their rescuing him will not make him sympathetic or nice at all he's going to do the exact opposite of what han solo does in the oh there we go oh yeah well of course he doesn't concede okay um yeah so the uh he's gonna betray them and it's just gonna drive home like that some people are just jerks and uh don't be self-interested and because that's going to be kind of part of finn's journey too is that he's going to get over his his fear of uh not, not necessarily get over his fear but realize that he could be motivated to fight on by being more afraid of disgrace and in dishonor than he is afraid of death. Uh, Rose's page, uh, Rose's sister page. Um, I, I think everybody kind of thinks that she's going to die pretty early. Um, inevitably, I think Finn is going to want to ditch everyone and run away. We've been told about this. Rose is going to clue Finn in on probably some way that her entire family has somehow suffered from the first order, because I do think that there is a problem in these, the backstory for the, this new trilogy, of like what exactly does the first order do like where do they come from and why are people like aside from the planet destruction thing like before that why were they bad what were they doing and um so i think we're going to get a little bit of that and i think this is probably kind of whether or not this speech makes it in i bet you there was one written up just so they could use it for the screen tests um i think uh, rose um it's not looking good for her in my opinion um and i really hate this thought uh, this is not something I want to be true at all. And I will be sad if it is because I feel like not only do I like Kelly Marie Tran a lot um, from what I've seen of her, I think that I, yeah, I, I think that uh, she's, I just don't see, unless it's like a Poe situation because originally Poe Dameron was going to die in the in the TIE fighter crash in The Force Awakens. And then once they realized, oh, actually, Oscar Isaac's really uh, charismatic and charming and people are going to like this guy, we'll bring him back. And so they do it in some kind of half-assed way. I don't think they're going to want to pull the same trick again. I think they're going to want to really kill somebody um, to up the stakes. And they can't kill Rey, or at least I don't think they can. And I don't think they're going to kill Luke or Leia. And if they do kill Leia, they're, they're huge liars because they promised us that well, maybe they promised us that she was going to live on. Um, but, you know, what are you going to do if, if, if she was always going to die all along? Personally, although that would probably make the next movie better, if it was always part of the plan that she wouldn't be there, I I don't like the idea that she was never going to get her own Star Wars movie where she was, like, front and center. 
like Han got his, Luke got his, and Leia wasn't going to get hers. I would like to at least think that the plan was for her to get hers. Um, so yeah, I, I have a feeling DJ is going to be one who somehow ends up doing her in after they infiltrate the uh, First Order's giant-ass ship. Uh, I think Luke, at some point, is going to get scared and angry, and he's going to toss the old blue lightsaber into the ocean. And this is something that Steel Saunders predicted uh, would happen. He, th- he was joking about it happening as soon as he first touches the lightsaber. He immediately hucks it behind his back. I think that would be awesome, but I don't think it's going to happen because basically because what we've seen in the trailers makes it seem really unlikely. Um, I think the point this is going to happen is when Luke realizes that Rey is already powerful enough to get everyone killed and ruin everything. And she's not going to take him seriously. I'm like, I'm not going to train you. She's like, fine, I'm going to figure it out on my own from somebody. If not you, I'll, I'll find out somehow. And then he's going to take the lightsaber. He's like, I'm taking this back. And he's going to toss it in the ocean. And Rey's going to immediately dive into the ocean to get it back. And that is going to be sort of... That's going to be like a test of her courage. I don't think Luke's going to be testing her, though. I think he's going to be serious. Like, you just know you don't get to do this. And, um, yeah, I think we're getting more force backs, for sure. Uh, we all know that from the trailers, because we've seen, you know, scenes of the burning temple and all that. Uh, but I think Luke will be in control of this time, them this time. I think he's going to be guiding Ray through them, and then at some point he'll start to lose control and she'll freak out and see or hear something Luke wasn't prepared for or didn't know about or didn't want her to know. Um, Ray also we are, has been established is pretty good at navigating the depths of other people's minds, even when she wasn't uh, wasn't the one to initiate that kind of link. Um, so, yeah, I think actual literal force ghosts. I hate that term. Just ghosts is fine. We all know that they're ghosts. The force doesn't really make them any more ghosts or less ghosts or different kind of ghosts than other ghosts. I think that's uh, literal ghosts are unlikely. I think the actual like spectral ectoplasmic um, manifestation is not likely to happen because uh, that would mean that Luke or that would suggest that Luke could be communicating with them all these times and he would already know all the secrets and that would be boring. So I think if they do show up, uh, Luke will ask them where they've been all this time because for exactly that reason, Um, if the ghosts are there, uh, one ghost, at least, it will explain why this is the last time they can ever appear. Um, that they're becoming one with the Force or some crap like that and losing their identity and individuality and merging with the cosmos. Um, I think that's just for storytelling reasons. You don't want the ghosts coming back because they really mess everything up. They take a lot of the drama and tension out of it, and people can learn the answers to their questions um, without having to do anything cool for it. I don't think that that's the way they want to go. Um that said, I think Yoda and Ben Kenobi might show up in some form as disembodied voices, perhaps. Uh, Yoda might have a little bit more to say just because Frank Oz is still alive. Uh, I think a lot of Luke's torment is going to be hidden from us um, in a way. I think his refusal to train Ray will awaken old spirits and their voices might swirl around in his head and he'll try to shout them down or maybe Ray will hear it, maybe not. Uh, if we hear Ben Kenobi again, I'd bet dollars to donut Stephen Stanton's voice, not Ewan McGregor's, uh, simply because... It's just it's just a leap too far to like have to explain. Well, yes, it's Obi Wan Kenobi and it's young Obi Wan Kenobi because not that I have anything against Ewan McGregor. I, um, he, I, I stand by my uh, statement that if they can make a young Obi Wan film that's um, a respectful to the existing story, uh, then I would love to see him do it because he's awesome. Like he's a great actor and he he brought a lot to that character. So. But I think that Stephen Stanton is, is going to be the guy. And this I base mostly on Stephen Stanton's own reluctance to even admit that it was him doing the voice of Ben Kenobi in Rebels, even after 
it was like rumored that the, the episode was out. I don't think he wanted to say anything because he was worried about running afoul of an NDA um, with Lucasfilm about his voiceover work for The Last Jedi. That's you now he didn't tell me that, and he definitely did not tell me that. Um, because also, I have only talked to him once as well. We mostly talked about Batman. But um, I think that some of the ancient Jedi lore Luke will uncover on Octu. Uh, this is going to bedevil me for the rest of my life, I think. Um, I think it will tell him about uh, some of this stuff about the light and the dark sides being split off from the same family or something like that. We'll get some weird stuff resembling the Ashla and Boggan or Paraforce stuff that from Uncle George's early drafts of Star Wars, again, because this stuff has been touched on in, in like cartoons and things, but they'll change the names of it and they'll go back to that original speech. There's a speech by the Luke Skywalker character in the early drafts to like some uh, students or, or younger brothers or something where he explains like basically the entire history of the Jedi and the force and like where they started and what they were like and what everything is. He gives that speech in that movie because his character is supposed to be like a, like a space anthropologist. Um, and uh, that stuff tends to, tends to warm its way into the, the canon sooner or later. Uh, I think that the quote unquote force tree will not be anywhere near as important as it's a lot of fans have kind of assumed it will be. Um, it may not even exist. Maybe it's just a cool looking tree stump, you know? Uh, I just don't understand what, if the tree has any significance, it'll have some significance to the backstory of the ancient history of the force or the Jedi or something. It's going to be something like that. Uh, it's not going to be like the stupid, like comic book thing where they like, Oh, we got to rescue like a sapling from the forest tree taken from the Jedi temple that does God knows what, um, nothing really. It's just a way of telling a story that kind of ties into things, but really doesn't tell you anything. Uh, I kind of get my opinion right there about a lot of these, uh, spinoff comics and stuff. Uh, I think bringing Anakin back will raise too many problems with Kylo, um, that they won't do it. After all, if Anakin can appear and he's kind of makes him a jerk for not trying to stage an intervention, an intervention for Kylo Ren earlier. Um, there would have to be some explanation about how the ghost can only appear on Ach 2 or something like that because it's like maybe like a magnet for their spiritual power. But it's just, it's lame, you know? Like, I really hope they don't. Even a weird evil ghost of Vader, which could look cool, that would also mess things up because Kylo would just follow the evil ghost um, of, his, of his hero grandfather. He, would, he wouldn't bother with Snoke. He, he, would, he wants to be like Darth Vader. That's his hero. He, if there was an evil Vader ghost out there, talking with them or even a ghost that was like half evil half good like the like some of the concept art had posited um i don't think that he would have anything to do with snoke i think he would be following that advice um so yeah that's it hey about 20 minutes uh, more or less so i couldn't think of anything else um i think a lot of the other predictions i could make are very very boring and not really that special even if i got them right because it's kind of like it's like the ring theory style of, uh, of Star Wars uh, pontification where you just take something that is really obvious and then you put it out there as if it's incredibly profound when in fact it's just something that happens in almost every movie ever. Um, or, you, or you simplify the plot down to the point where you're always accurate when you describe it. No matter how vague you're being, you can, there's a way of twisting it to make it so it fits the pattern you want. I'm not going to do that to you because I respect your intelligence. Um, so... I'm really curious, uh, personally, although some of those ideas I really like, uh, most of them, I don't care if they're true or not, uh, because I, like I said, I, I really just want to be surprised, uh, and to be surprised and delighted and amazed with, uh, with the, the fidelity of 
the presentation, the fidelity to the source material, but also the uh, with the um, treating it with enough respect to to build upon it, to treat it as a foundation for other good stories rather than as a uh, kind of corpse to be dissected and picked apart for every possible marketable slab of of uh, of story meat. Um, that's what I hope, and that's pretty abstract, but. You know, so it goes. So, so, so it is. You know. Anyway, that's it. Uh, enjoy the movie, guys. I can't wait to talk to you again. We're going to continue the series uh, after the movie, so we'll be able to watch a couple movies um, that inspired the Last Jedi with the with the knowledge of what the Last Jedi is about, what happens in it, and and that might be interesting too. I think what we've got left are I'm going to do a solo podcast about the Bridge on the River Kwai, and I'm going to do a. Uh, Hopefully Emily Lynn will join me for um, Letter Never Sent, which is another Russian film. It's awesome. It might be my favorite of all of these. Um, and uh, then we got one on the Three Outlaw Samurai, uh, which I think will wrap it up. And I'm really trying to get Hawes Burkhart and, and Will, if I could, uh, on the next. I know they like samurai movies, but if not, I can also do that one on my own because I know a little bit of the history there, too. So I can't wait to, to uh, ring in the new year with uh, all my fan buddies. Thank you so much for, for listening to the show and supporting it and sharing uh, it with your friends. And, um, you know, I say so long, suckers, in my standard uh, outro, but uh, you're not suckers. You are true blue friends. Mm-hmm.